Well, welcome to Teaching Thursdays on the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morse, featuring a collection of sermons and teaching series. And most especially on today's episode, featuring uh, the true beginning of our long, in-depth study through this book, Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. I've announced this, and we've spent two episodes uh, announcing that we're going to be doing this as our collected study on Teaching Thursdays. And then uh, last time, we talked about uh, the introduction of what the uh, translator and editor had to say about this book in a way to really whet our appetites for what is going to be hopefully a very uh, unique, very helpful study for you and for me as I go through it with all of you watching and listening. I wanted to say that this episode on the Better Bible Reading Podcast is brought to you by my supporters over at Patreon.com. Uh, those who have invested and uh, supported my efforts on this podcast and the website uh, to bring you uh, helpful content. And so if you would like to support the podcast, would like to uh, join those who are already doing so, you can head to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. You'll see one of three different support tiers that you can choose from, or you can Uh, support me for a a custom amount that you choose. Either way, your support will uh, help me, uh, number one, and greatly appreciate it. And number two, uh, you'll be given access to uh, exclusive and unique content and uh, special uh, opportunities for those who are part of my uh, Patreon supporters. So patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. Huge shout out of thanks to those of you who are already doing so. All right, our first uh, real deep dive into theoretical practical theology by Peter Van Maastricht is going to be, surprisingly, and the way this book is designed, it's going to start out, before we really get into the ins and outs of systematic theology, uh, we're going to jump and, and just really follow uh, the way that this book is laid out in Volume 1 here. And that is after all of the uh, initial content talking about uh, why this book has been translated into English and those kind of things, we really get into the first thing that uh, Peter Van Maastricht himself writes, and that is uh, his best method of preaching. And you'll see that if you have a copy of the book now, hopefully you do, you're going through this with me, Uh, you'll see that before we really get into the... uh, prolegomena, the, the really meat of this volume one, uh, all the way in page uh, 39 and following, really pages uh, one through 30 or so, is this beginning, uh, the best method of preaching. The way that this has been explained is that um, this section of Peter Van Maastricht's teaching on preaching Uh, could be used as kind of a reflection at the very end of your entire study of his theoretical practical theology, or it could be understood at the front end of it. Now, with this particular translation, it's been placed at the front, and I think that's a great move because when we think about Peter Van Maastricht, we've talked about this last time. Uh, I talked about it even before that when I said this is the book we're going to be using in, in our systematic theology study together is that he really emphasizes the practical 
he really emphasizes what it means for us to deal with the right use of doctrine and theology. And I can't think of a better way to really encapsulate that than preaching, because preaching really gets us beyond just a personal growth or or beyond a um, personal benefit of transferring information from one person to another. So just kind of fact-finding. Instead, it gets us to the big idea of the Christian life, and preaching really is that, because it's not just lectures on what the Bible says, it's not just interesting tidbits about the Bible that you might not have known, it's not a chance for uh, the preacher uh, to flex of how smart he is or how uh, unique his uh, communication style is, it's really supposed to be a divine work of God speaking through his uh, appointed person to communicate the text to you, and then the Holy Spirit working in that communication of the text to renew our hearts, to grow us in holiness, or uh, to call us to Christ. And so there, there's a lot of things happening in preaching beyond just the um, imparting of information. You really get that practical, uh, that life-centered aspect of doctrine in the art of preaching. And I think that's a great reason for why this part of Peter Van Maastricht's teaching on preaching comes at the very front of what we're talking about instead of way at the end. And so this episode today, we're going to be uh, dealing with uh, some of the initial things that Peter Van Maastricht has to say about preaching. The title of this section of the book is called The Best Method of Preaching. And now that could sound arrogant, could sound way off base. At the very beginning, this guy's going to tell us, here's the best method of preaching. And so I think it would be helpful for us to uh, spend this episode to talk about why he titles this teaching about preaching the best method and to get into uh, some of the initial ways that he talks about preaching. Now, again, I know that most of you who are listening to this are not preachers, but you'll want to really pay attention and not skip this episode or or ask the question, Kevin, why are you even including this here? Uh, Because preaching is meant to be done and only makes sense if you have hearers. If there's nobody to listen, then preaching doesn't exist. And so you play as not preachers, but members of, hopefully, a congregation. You play a pivotal role. You play a vital role in the whole idea of preaching because you are the one that it is being presented to. And so if you understand the right idea of what preaching is, you'll understand your responsibility and the benefit that you should be anticipating as a hearer. Of preaching. So hopefully this is very, very informative for you. So we're going to be wrestling through uh, this first section, the best method of preaching, in several weeks, even though it's only about 30 pages. There's so much in there because he talks about sermon length. He talks about uh, how to use introductions or illustrations. He talks about all of the facets of preaching, and there's no way that I could really just fly through all of this in one episode. So I think we're probably going to end up doing about three episodes on his uh, best method of preaching, Uh, but let's just jump into it. And so you see 
he presents his preface to the section of theoretical practical theology. And he speaks at the very beginning of men that he is greatly indebted to. In other words, what he's saying in this idea of the best method of preaching is that this isn't something that he's just invented out of thin air. In fact, he he says at the very beginning that he's really not unique in this sense because he mentions other guys such as William Perkins and others who are uh, really formative in this mindset of what preaching is. And so he says, I could not claim with any appearance of truth that this is my method, uh, wholeheartedly uh, exclusive, copyrighted, trademarked by Peter Van Maastricht. This is, in fact, something that uh, was part of a tradition of preaching, part of a mindset of preaching that went beyond him. So he says, this is probably the most important part if you're to understand why he calls this the best method of preaching. He says this, Therefore, I called it best because compared with any other method, it especially seemed to serve the edification of the church. I have found it through the 17 years of my ecclesiastical office, not only the most convenient to me as the one preparing to preach, but also the easiest and least cumbersome to my hearers. Seeing that among the catechumens, Uh, students, studiers, there are those who by its aid are able aptly to repeat the outline of my sermons and their listeners openly profess that they perceive at least the same degree of usefulness from these repetitions as from the sermons themselves. That idea is so crucial because what we see Peter Van Maastricht saying about preaching, about this method, is that the big idea of why it's best is because it seems to serve the church the most. He has in mind, as a true pastor here, certainly certainly a theologian, certainly an an academic uh, master uh, to the highest degree, uh, that primarily uh, he has the the hat of a preacher here. Uh, This makes sense because he is teaching us about preaching. But again, the person who is doing the preaching is the pastor, the shepherd, the caretaker of God's flock. And because of that, preaching should be something that glorifies God, but it should have an aim or a trajectory towards the best help to the flock. And so, this isn't the best method because it makes him look the best, again, because it's it's this celebrity thing, but it's the best method because it seems to care for you as a hearer, as a member of Christ's church. That idea also, when he speaks of uh, the best method of preaching being that which is the least cumbersome, the least burden uh, to the people, really lends us to an idea that he's going to revisit again and again, and that is actually the idea of memorization. Now, we'll get to that later, but you should know, at least at the front end, that what Peter Van Maastricht has in mind when he's talking about preaching is actually communicating something to you that can be recited, that can be memorized. Now, if you're scared here because you're thinking, how in the world can I memorize sermons? How can I recite sermons from memory? Well, I want you to have in mind perhaps a lost art of the Christian life, and that is the whole idea of 
meditation. We'll get to that as well as we continue to work our way through this. So, again, just know at the very outset, according to Peter Van Maastricht, the best method of preaching is named because it seems to be the best help and the best care to God's people. So he says this. Um, he now gives four reasons uh, for, he says, here's four reasons for my opinion regarding the goal of this method. So he rehearses, he's got basically four advantages or four uh, goals in mind when he's uh, going to communicate to us um, this whole idea of, of preaching. He says, first, uh, this is advantageous to the minister's preparation for teaching. Um, so, number one, this is going to be helpful. This method, if you use this method, is going to be um, beneficial for you as a minister. So, if you are a minister, if you are somebody that preaches, uh, this is going to be helpful to you. And he says that because as you work through this, um, he says, let me just read what he says, actually. He said, it's going to be advantageous for a minister's preparation for preaching that he tie his reflection to its few but universal precepts, and by their aid discover an abundance of things to say, from, it, from which he may later select those that are most useful for the church. I love that because I've been preaching off and on ever since 2012, uh, so almost 10 years, not, not regular weekly preaching. But I have been preaching on occasion ever since 2012. And so I can relate to this at the very beginning uh, that he says this is going to be helpful for those of you who are preaching because it's one thing to say everything you could think to say in a sermon. It's another thing to sift through that and say the best things from everything that you could think to say. In other words, I don't know how many of you have been to um, a service where the preacher seemed to want to communicate every single thing that he thought of in his study of the sermon. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to really uh, lavish uh, the congregation with, with a feast of things to think of especially if you're somebody in the congregation that likes to take notes. You can just uh, pick from all of the things you hear in the sermon uh, the best that you could possibly uh, gather, and you can do the sifting work uh, because the preacher evidently is not doing it. But that can be very burdensome to those of you who are listening to sermons where it seems like the preacher has uh, a fully automatic rifle and is just pelting you uh, with an unlimited amount of bullets of information uh, to where you feel overwhelmed. It's like trying to drink from um, a fire hydrant. The pressure is just so um, unbelievable for an average person. Um, and especially because in that 30 minutes, 40 minutes of time, maybe 50 minutes of time, um, that the preacher is just relentlessly uh, giving you this wealth of information. Um, he is doing that in a concentrated amount of what took him the entire week to wrestle through and to meditate on. And so he's had the luxury of a long time to roll this over in his mind 
and then he's just hitting you with it at such a rate um, that it's impossible for you to be able to do the same thing. And so there's a lot to be said here just in this first point of what the benefit of this method is. Uh, You should be excited about this because it means that your pastor, your preacher, uh, using this method, so maybe buy this for him for Christmas if if you don't like his method uh, right now, that he's going to wrestle through this in a way to say, um, maybe I should be more selective about what I say. Maybe I should do the legwork during the week, but then render that down in a way that is appropriate uh, for uh, the benefit of the congregation. Uh, I think Sinclair Ferguson was asked once about method and style of preaching, and he says, um, this is a paraphrase, but he says, really the goal of preaching is to present a finely prepared dish to your congregation. Um, But many preachers want to take you into the kitchen and show you all the prep work that was done, all the seasonings that were used, all the nuances of how the dish was cooked, uh, forgetting that all of that is meant to lead to the end of the fine meal that you're giving to the people. And you can burden the people and overwhelm them, even though there's many people that are interested in the background information and all of the related uh, biblical texts to the one that you're focusing on. People like that, but there's a place for that, and the sermon itself is not the exhaustive place to go over every nook and cranny of the sermon because you can overwhelm your people. There is such a thing as saying too much, and the use of selectivity is a benefit to the congregation. And so there you go with the preacher in mind. And now his second advantage that he sees here uh, for this method is that it is advantageous for the hearers who, once acquainted with this method, that is the selectivity, uh, the preacher doing the rendering and the sifting and the editing, uh, can conveniently follow the thread of the sermon. Here you go. This is the, here you go again. Commit it to memory and review it at home with their families. Listen to what he says here. Without which, all the usefulness of the sermon dies. How many of you uh, spend time after the sermon? Now, full disclosure, I'm guilty of this as well. How many of you spend time after the sermon has been preached, later that afternoon on the Lord's Day, Uh, later during the week, and reflect on it with the rest of your family. This is a lost art where back during Peter Van Maastricht's time and and some of these, uh, those in the Dutch tradition, uh, which would include him, and those even in the more uh, Puritan England uh, tradition, what was very... Uh, popular and and very common among members of the congregation was to review the sermon over lunch. Uh, Sometimes you would invite another family over to your house and it would be uh, the topic of discussion at the uh, dinner table during lunch that you would reflect on what uh, the pastor had to say during the sermon. Or if you didn't invite people over, it would just be something that you did as a family later that day. 
And this was not only to seem like you're very spiritual on a Sunday. Uh, This was very much pointed towards that idea of committing it to memory. And that doesn't mean only that you could recite the three points of the sermon. But it means that when you came away from the sermon, when you came away from the biblical text that the pastor has just preached to you, you understand the flow of it. You understand what it's teaching. You understand what it's correcting. And you understand how to apply it to your life. That's really the idea of of memory, is that idea of Christian meditation. Uh, It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to meditate on what what it's saying. Preaching is not just reading what the passage says out loud. That's called scripture reading. Preaching is meditating on it in real time, out loud, to the congregation, working and stirring up all of the content of that text, and then giving it to the people to feast on. But as the people feast on it in real time during the sermon, there's also that method of digesting what has been feasted And this is really that idea of reflecting on it later, reviewing it with your families and friends. Now, if you don't uh, go to church with the rest of your family, if this is not an option for you, this is really where that note-taking really helps. Uh, Some of us take notes on a sermon, and then we never look at them again. Now, maybe you were able to receive some of what uh, was said. Maybe just the process of writing helps you memorize. This is the case for me. Uh, But really, the idea of writing isn't so. You can revisit it later on, and you can enjoy what has been given to you in a way that really sinks in and takes root. That's the idea. And so even if you don't have a family dinner table to do this, uh, take those notes that you wrote during the sermon and review them the same day. Don't review them days later. Don't review them weeks later when you finally open up your notebook again, but do it that very same day. That's going to be a way for you to really take a deep breath, take a step back from the service itself, and then reflect on the things that have been said. This will go a long way in committing it to memory, as Peter Van Maastricht says. Now, he doesn't mean by that Uh, the whole thing, the whole sermon, like you could memorize a manuscript, but what he means is uh, the big idea of of the sermon. But he says, this is not just a good idea, this is necessary, because he says, without doing this, the usefulness of the sermon dies. We might put it this way, without doing this, it simply goes in one ear and out the other. Can you tell me, without going online to your church website, what the last two or three sermons were on Sundays. If you can't, it's probably because you haven't spent any time reflecting on it beyond when you listened in real time. So you can just see where this idea comes comes from. At the very beginning, he's saying this method of preaching that we're going to cover, that he's going to lay out for us, is not only helpful for the preacher to be a better preacher, it's helpful for the hearer to be a better hearer. Uh, Number three, third is the advantage with respect to the very things that will be said, which will everywhere obtain 
their order in place. This order will procure both brilliance and elegance for the things that will be said, connect them to the things that have been said, and from this supply perspicuity. That's just a fancy word for clarity, for understanding. So he's saying this method is helpful because when we get into the mechanics of it, when we get into uh, the way that it's organized, the big idea is to help the preacher and the hearer have clarity of the text. So clarity is the big idea. Now number four, the fourth advantage to this method of preaching It is advantageous for the practice of piety, which is the soul of a sermon. I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes in this entire book, um, that he says that the practice of piety is the soul of the sermon. Again, if you turn to the front cover, theoretical, practical theology. You cannot have true theology without the practice. And you can't have a true sermon without the practice. A sermon is not just telling you what the Bible says and telling you what it means. A sermon is meant to communicate the truth of God's Word in such a way that it brings about holiness, piety. Uh, That it not only shows you what you should do, But it equips you, not by the power of the pastor, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, to practice of holiness. It should have a real transforming effect on our lives as a result of hearing in the right way. Now, this is not, again, method in the human sense only. This is a method relying on the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural work. But the big idea is that the sermon. Um, has no soul if it has no aim towards um, the practice of piety, because otherwise it is just a transfer of information. Otherwise, it's just a lecture. Otherwise, it's just, we might say, in our uh, common um, way of distortion in the 21st century, it's a matter of entertainment. It is a sad thing that so many pastors today can go to one of two extremes. They can either be all about the transfer of intellect from them to you, almost as if you're going into a graduate-level lecture that just happens to be taking place at a church behind a pulpit. This is not helpful because all it does is increase our knowledge with no eye towards the use of that knowledge, the practice of holiness. On the other hand, it is as sad of a thing when that level of knowledge, when that level of uh, the weight and the substance of doctrine is totally absent from the quote unquote sermon and instead is replaced by a quote-unquote pastor whose whole goal is to entertain you, to make you laugh, to make you cry, 
to motivate you, not towards God, not towards the Bible, but towards the church brand, or towards themselves as the image of the brand, the walking, living, breathing logo of the brand. This is very common that you have pastors who love to hear themselves talk. You have pastors that love to command an audience, who love to make you hang on their every word, but all of those words have no matter of substance to them, because all it is is an entertainment event. It is like going to hear your favorite stand-up comedian or your favorite motivational speaker or your favorite uh, performer from a band or something like that. You go there wowed with who they are in real time, but they only leave you uh, wanting more and more. They, they leave you begging for more, begging for another audience with them, and never having their, their eyes towards uh, your care, your nourishment. It makes me think of Ezekiel 34, God's prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Here's uh, what it says in Ezekiel 34, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. This is a terrifying indictment uh, that Ezekiel brings uh, to the shepherds who are understood to be the teachers of Israel uh, during this time in the Old Testament. And it has a correlation to pastors and teachers today. Uh, This indictment of pastors who seek to feed themselves or to domineer over the sheep, but never actually do what their task is as handlers of the Word of God, and that is to feed them, that is to look at the uh, multifaceted purpose of the Word of God in the art of teaching and preaching. And so we can see that this is uh, what Peter Van Maastricht is communicating that we do uh, as preachers, and that what we do as hearers is that goal of the centrality of the word, and not just for knowledge, but for true practice, true transformation. Lastly, what we can do in our time on this episode is to see that these four advantages that Peter Van Maastricht communicates to us segue us into the actual content. And so this is why this method of preaching is understood to be the, me- the best method uh, in the mind of Peter Van Maastricht. And then with that introduction, he leads us into the parts of preaching. Once we get to page five, uh, halfway down, you see the bold heading, the parts of preaching. That's really the title, uh, the big title heading for the whole rest of the book. The parts of preaching, he's going to work from pages 5 to the end, page 30. These four parts of preaching, these four things that must be observed in preaching. And he names them invention, 
arrangement, elaboration, and delivery. And he says, which in turn faithfully extend outstretched helping hands to each other. So again, that idea, that imagery of do this and it will be good. And then this will come in to strengthen that. And then this will come in to strengthen both of those. And then when you have all four of them together, they each feed off of and build upon one another. That idea of outstretched helping hands to each other. So just quickly, because he spends such a short amount of time on the first two, um, we first have this idea of invention. He says invention is the discovery either of the argument to be made to the people or of a text suitable for the argument. Now what this means is that you have, in preaching, a big idea. Um, Haddon Robinson, the the late uh, professor from Gordon-Conwell, wrote a book about biblical preaching. And he was a very big proponent of the idea that every sermon should have a big idea. Every sermon should have basically a one-sentence-long summary statement. And sometimes it's useful to repeat that multiple times throughout the sermon so that your people can understand this big idea that comes from the text. This is really what um, Peter Van Maastricht's idea of invention means here. He's not saying uh, dream up an idea uh, that you want to communicate in the text, uh, but what he's saying is really the idea of invention is the idea of boiling down what's there into a big idea. Now, he does say this, that it works in both ways. Um, Certainly, I would say that he's somebody who would have been a supporter of preaching through books of the Bible. We call this expository preaching, or sometimes it's called sequential expository preaching. The idea that you don't say, I wonder what I want to preach on this week, and then you just choose a topic, find a couple verses to support your topic, and then go from there. But instead, it's the idea of preaching through uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, to the end of that book, and then deciding what book you want to preach next, begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through. That would be sequential expository preaching. But there is a way to preach expository messages without working all the way through books of the Bible. Um, That would be, in this sense, coming up with a biblical topic and then finding a text, not to prove your point, but finding a text which most clearly and faithfully teaches that. Truly, it is there in the text. So in other words, it's not just an idea you dream up. It's a a doctrinal or theological conclusion that you have based on what a certain text says. Uh, This, uh, probably the best example of somebody who preached this way, uh, was um, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon didn't preach through, although he wrote commentaries on books of the Bible, he didn't preach through books of the Bible. He preached more topically, um, never really in the same book from week to week. But if you read his sermons, you will see that he is preaching expositorily. That is, he is breaking down the text. You can see very clearly that what his big idea from any sermon to the next is in the text that he's using. So again, that's the idea of invention. 
the discovery either of an argument to be made to the people or of a text suitable for the argument. So this is really helpful. And he says, um, in selecting the argument, it must be observed. Uh, that which seems intended to attract the applause of the common people, but rather what is most suitable for edifying the church, which should be the guiding star to the entire sermon. So I read just a snippet of that, so if it's unclear of what he's saying on the bottom of page 5, what he's saying is that this whole idea is not meant to just choose a topic out of thin air to tickle the ears of the congregation. But instead, if you're not preaching through books of the Bible, what this method should be able to do, even if you aren't doing that, what this method should be able to do is help you have a mind and heart towards not what is going to cause the applause of the common people, but what is the most edifying to the church. Not what's going to wow the world, but what's going to feed the sheep is the idea. And that, he says, should be the guiding star of the entire sermon. And then he says, not be excessively prolix so that the time for the argument is not snatched away first by a rather prolix explanation of the words, and not excessively brief so that the preacher does not make his argument clear enough or plain enough, or even produce a suspicion in, uh, the, in the hearers. So what he means by, by those two qualifiers is that the sermon shouldn't be so elaborate that you steal away time to really get to what is being said in the text itself. Now, he's not even really dealing with the idea of, of the practical side that comes at the end, but he's saying, if you start out a sermon, let's say in the book of Isaiah, you got a 30-minute sermon. You spend 20 minutes talking about all of the background things that are happening. You spend 20 minutes talking about why Isaiah should be understood as the author. <clears throat> you spend 20 minutes talking about all of the surrounding nations that really give the historical context to Isaiah's ministry to Israel. And then you spend 10 minutes, or whatever time you have left, actually dealing with the verses that you just read. He's saying, don't be so elaborate in all of the uh, introductory matter, in all of the supporting context, uh, that you're weak, that you're very light in the actual sermon, in the actual sermon text. Um, and then he says as well, your sermon should also <clears throat> not be so brief, or your introduction should not be so brief um, that the preacher doesn't make his argument um, less clearly and plainly and end up producing suspicion in the hearers. So again, there's such a thing as, as trying to set the stage for way too much time. There's also such a thing as trying to jump into it so quickly that you don't even communicate the thrust of the argument of the text at all. And then you leave people scratching their heads, uh, saying, what was that, just a quick pep talk? Or, 
did he not really study that all that much? He seemed like he was just looking at his watch or looking looking at the clock on the back wall uh, to try to see how much longer he could maybe make this go so it didn't seem uh, like um, just an, an opening speech to something else. Uh, so the idea is balance your time in a right way. As we get into uh, the way that he sets up this whole mindset of preaching, the whole idea of the sermon, he gets into observation number two, halfway on page six, and that is the arrangement of a sermon and its laws. So he gets into um, really how the sermon should be structured. He's going to get into um, the introduction itself. He's going to get into the doctrine, uh, the exposition of the text, and then the practice of the text. We're going to be working through uh, pages 6 through 30, but again, we're going to have to split that up because there's so much to be said, but hopefully you have here, just by way of his preface uh, to his teaching on the best method of preaching, and that very first point of the invention, or the the big idea of the text, um, that you have in mind, what is the goal of preaching? Hopefully you have in mind that the answer to that question, even if you don't know the answer yet, that the answer is something so important that it concerns not only those who are doing the preaching, but those who are doing the listening. And that includes all of us. And so hopefully you see that this is a very, very important and very helpful way for us to think through what the idea of preaching is when we gather together each and every Lord's Day. And it should also, I hope, by the end of this, help you do some soul-searching. because. As we live in a free society here in the United States, as we have the luxury and the availability of choosing a church that seems to match our biblical convictions the most, then you really do have the opportunity to do some soul-searching by the time we come away from this and say, am I part of a church that even cares about this? Do I think that my pastor would communicate to me that he's on board with this idea? And if not, we have the mandate to seek out a church that does. And so I hope that this is informative, I hope it's helpful, but I also hope that it helps you do some soul-searching of your own, of the kind of Christian fellowship that you belong to. And if you don't belong to one, that it encourages you to seek one out. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with me today on the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and to really get into uh, the subject matter of theoretical practical theology. Uh, next time on Teaching Thursdays, we'll jump back into this book and keep working our way through Peter Van Maastricht's best, best method of preaching. Take care and have a great rest of your day.